0: okay we're going to get started in probably about four or five minutes i'm just trying to give the line time to uh get down and and get in here so uh uh, i've got one question that was put in we got out of the box this morning and uh, i can go ahead and read and address that question because obviously i didn't do a good job of communicating last sunday so i need to clarify and pour water on this one um This was in the box. It says, we do not want to discontinue Sunday school. I hope you didn't hear me say that we were discontinuing Sunday school because we are not, ever. Sunday School Connect Group is still a vital part of the discipleship strategy. And it is what I attempted to communicate. it's, It's a vital part, but it's not the entire discipleship strategy. It's one part, And it's not enough. And we're going to create within the Sunday school or connect group structure, smaller groups called D groups or discipleship groups of three to five men or three to five women that are underneath the connect groups structure. So that there's smaller, more accountable, deeper drilling discipleship groups within the connect group structure. But I did not say or I hope I didn't say that we were going to do away with anything. Uh, connect group wise because we're not. It's it's an important part of the discipleship structure. One reason is the the connect group is the fishing pool for discipleship groups. It's where we will get our discipleship groups from. It's from within the connect groups. Discipleship groups by nature are three to five men or three to five women. Deeper, disi- deeper discipleship groups. Uh, am I going crazy or did my voice just leave? I, <laughs> I thought he wasn't. Uh, and so, but that smaller group, there's many things that it can't do that the connect group can. For instance, in three to five men or three to five women, you don't have the resources to do ministry projects. But in a connect group, you do have resources to do ministry projects just by nature of the larger group. So the the Part most of the ministry that takes place will be at the connect group level, not at the D group level. Now, within that D group, certainly, if you got five men who are walking through life, learning to live as Christ would learn, would live their life if He was walking in their shoes. Certainly, you have a responsibility to be accountable and to minister to that group of men or that group of women. But from an outwardly focused Point of view that we're going to continue on in tonight the connect group is a much more viable mechanism for that just because it's larger you have more resources more people more contacts more opportunity but we're not doing away with connect groups so please everybody in here get out your water gun and squirt that one because that's not what i intended to communicate and i'm sorry if i didn't do a good job and i'm not looking to break up larger classes i've always had a large class Robin and I both, in years past, had Sunday school classes. She had one of all women, of close to 80 women, and I had one that was co-ed that was close to 100 people. There's nothing wrong with large classes as long as the large classes organize in smaller subsets in order to do ministry. And you can call it care groups, you can call it ministry groups, you can call it whatever you want to, but a large class has to be broken down in smaller units for the purpose of ministering to the class because... The teacher, Digger's probably got one of the biggest classes in the, in the church. Digger can't do all the ministry for a class that size. But Digger can have subsets of people who are responsible and broke down within that class to make sure ministry happens and communication of needs are um, communicated across the class. So while Digger's class, uh, Dolly's phone don't need to ring a 100 times every time somebody gets sick, but in a smaller subset, they can take care of that. Does that make sense? So the connect groups are important, very, they're a vital part of discipleship uh, for a lot of reasons, that's just a few. But we are not, not capital N, capital O, capital T, doing away with any connect groups for Sunday school or breaking up larger classes. Now, I do want to see us birth new classes, and churches traditionally don't do a good job of that because we tend to grow larger and larger and get more comfortable and more comfortable and we don't create new things. The nature of any organization is is new things grow more than old things. So when you birth new classes, you will get new life. And so in order to, to continually create leadership, you need to continually birth new classes. That increases the size of your bowl, your ministry bowl. So if we're gonna increase our capacity for ministry, we have to increase the number of groups we have and new groups grow faster than old groups. So I do am a huge advocate for birthing groups out of groups. That's the reason every Connect Group leader should continually be identifying leadership And praying and pushing them out of the nest to start new groups. And the problem quickly becomes space. And that is why my comments the last couple of weeks were, we can't create a discipleship process that is bound by finite space issues. That's the reason we got to use every hour of every day of the week, including your homes and this building and Monday through Saturday, because if if God brings Pentecost here and we have a lot of people to disciple and connect with and do ministry with, we can't be bound by the size of our Sunday school classrooms. That's a no-win equation for, for discipleship and growth. So we have to start thinking outside of our Sunday morning box. And you can call it inconvenient. I just call it reality. Do we want to create and increase the size of our ministry capacity for people to be saved and be discipled, or do we want to just hold on to an hour on Sunday morning? I'm sorry, but that makes no spiritual or practical sense to me. So we got to start thinking differently. We just cannot stick with that kind of thought process. And for those of us who have been in the church game for a long time and are supposed to be more mature in this walk we need to be the ones willing to make the first sacrifice and figure it out for us to make room for those who desperately need what we've had for the last 30 years so it's just called stepping up it's called being a mature sacrificial outwardly focused christian does that make sense Anything, any other questions pertaining to that or anything that was I was unclear about? I confuse myself a lot. All right. Keep those cards and letters coming. We will address them. If you address things specifically to me and sign them, I will respond specifically to you, and I won't read them on Sunday night unless I feel they're of general interest, okay? So if uh, if you have addressed me uh, specifically, I have your card, and I will get back with you, and uh, we will make sure that you get a response. Okay, I've got 20 minutes after, and we will get started with slides, as long as Aaron's back. Aaron, are you back? Did you get your pen? Okay, we're good, and we can go. All right. I was just stalling, so Aaron could go get an ink pen. That's all I was doing. We have been, this is week four of six of expectations. We have been through week one, clarity of the gospel, where we, we clarified what the gospel is. It is not a one-time event. It is a lifetime of abiding in Christ. It is a one-time transformation or conversion of a heart from dead to alive by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is your moment of conversion when you receive the gift of eternal life because of the gift that Christ Jesus gave us by dying on the cross and resurrecting from the grave that we might also be resurrected. That is the point of your conversion. But your gospel life, your salvation continues on. It continues on until the day that you're glorified and you go on to your eternal existence with God in a new heaven and a new earth. So salvation we said very clearly is not the finish line it's the starting line and we need to stop treating it as the finish line because it's just not it's your beginning point as a christian and your eternal life started that day when you met christ and continues on until it says that we are sealed by the holy spirit until the day of our redemption and so the gospel is genesis to revelation it's the entire encompassing story of christ jesus and who he was on this earth and who he died that we might become that's the gospel it's not three points it's not an elevator speech it is a lifestyle of living your life as though christ was living in you and he is so clarity of the gospel discipleship is not optional it was we we talked about conversion and discipleship you can define them and uh, their distinctives separately but they're two sides of the same coin you can't separate them you can differentiate them but you can't separate them because they're two sides of the same coin there is no salvation in the scripture apart from a discipleship relationship with jesus christ you can't say jesus i want your salvation but i don't intend to follow you best i remember in the new testament when he met his disciples he said one simple thing follow me Matter of fact, if you ever only have an elevator trip with somebody and they say, what's this Christianity thing about? You can tell them this. Just follow Jesus and he'll teach you everything you need to know. That's the gospel in a nutshell. To follow Jesus, you have to meet him. You got to know him. You got to trade your wretchedness for his righteousness and you have to walk with him for all of your life. So there's a clarity of the gospel. Discipleship is not optional. We must be followers of Christ in order to call ourselves Christians. We can't make up our own definitions. Or let other people believe things that aren't biblically true and accurate. Then week four last, we talked about whatever it takes. Attitude is everything. And it really is. Oh, my goodness. A lot of... Uh, well... I won't say a lot 100% of church issues are usually are always born out of attitude selfishness all divorces selfishness you have two selfish people coming together in an unselfish relationship selfishness every argument we have in church selfishness it's all about attitude. And if our attitude is surrendered with our life to Christ Jesus and our mind becomes the mind of Christ and our attitude becomes that of Christ, then all these other things fade away. And we live a life for the purpose of others that don't have time for all this foolishness of yin, yan and back and forth in church. Listen, people are dying and going to hell. We, don't, we can't sit and argue about things like that. We have to stay focused. We gotta keep the main thing the main thing. And attitude is everything. And listen, that's that's sort of what church discipline is about. We all need attitude adjustments sometimes. And it's called calibration back to the gospel. It's called the gospel is our plumb line. We all get off base sometime and we have a gospel that keeps us centered. And so we also have D group relationships of Small groups of men, small groups of women, and connect groups that hold us accountable and bring us always back to the square one of the gospel. And we're afraid we're going to offend somebody. Well, I really need that. They, they shouldn't have done that, but I really don't feel like I need to infringe on their life. Why? That's our role. It's our responsibility as believers. For goodness sakes, if I start going off into an a ungodly place, please love me enough. To grab me and yank me back to the gospel because if you let me continue on in that place you're not loving me you're hating me and look I'm not going to respond kindly initially because my flesh will respond to you first just like yours will to me but you got to move beyond that first response until the spirit takes over the situation so just know the reality of people and the reality of relationships and expect what you're going to expect and then speak into it anyway in love and then let the Holy Spirit deal with it. He's good at it, better than you are and better than I am. So whatever it takes attitude. Then this morning, or this morning, it seems like morning, we've been here all day. Uh, but live an others-centered life. Live an others-centered life. And that's what this whole expectation thing is has been about in one way or another. 90% of evangelicals never share their faith with anyone outside their family. 90% of evangelicals. Anybody see anything wrong with that statement? By definition, an evangelical is one who shares their faith with other people. So we get these labels that yes, I'm an evangelical believer, but no, I've never shared my testimony or shared my faith of Christ with anybody outside my family, and most church growers hadn't even shared it with their family. They get it and they hoard it, and it's completely opposite of, of what the scripture teaches. Ninety percent never share their faith. There's just nothing right with that. Only twenty listen to this. Only twenty percent of churches in the US are growing. And only 1% are growing by reaching lost people. 99% of church growth is by swapping fish in the fishbowl. There are many megachurches built on the harvest of other people's church members. Because we built a consumeristic attitude in churches, and when the show gets boring at their place, they go to the bigger show and mega churches grow like crazy. And it's just not a megachurch issue, it's a church issue completely. 99% of church growth is by swapping church members. Does that sound anything remotely like an evangelical movement to you? No, an evangelical movement would be the opposite. When Rick Warren started Saddleback 30, 35 years ago now, he started it with a premise in mind that he would, be, he would begin it and grow it by reaching people for Christ Jesus. He started with his real estate agent. It helped him find a place to live in Southern California when he got there. And from there, he started sharing his faith and sharing his testimony. and People got saved. And so he built his church on new converts. That's what church is supposed to look like. We're not supposed to be fishing for other, in other people's ponds. We're not supposed to, that's what's wrong with the attractional model in church growth. Is all you're really trying to do is attract other people's fish. That's not evangelical. That's driven out of a totally different motive than the gospel. And we're not about church growth, we're about church health. And we're about sharing our faith with the lost world. So we need, to, we need to wrap our mind around some of these concepts that we've just grown so numb to or maybe not even heard before. But we're not, we're not looking for church growth. We're looking for church health and the gospel to be propagated, perpetuated throughout the world by our testimony, by sharing the gospel. So 95% of the church growth we celebrate merely shuffles existing Christians around. Really, do do we think that it's really kingdom productivity to spend ninety five percent of our energy swapping church members? Mm, I don't think so. God's up there just shaking his head and look, folks. There's billions of people in the world that don't know my son. Y'all are spending ninety five percent of your budget on yourself and ninety five percent of your energy on other church members. Does that make sense to anybody in this room? I don't think so. We've got to start thinking differently and realizing the reality of the situation in the American Evangelical Church. And listen, these things are foreign, foreign to the church outside the United States, foreign. The Chinese are growing, their, their churches are growing at such a rate, they, they can't even keep up with the count by new converts. And they're such a closed nation. And in, in the movie, um, The Insanity of God, Nick Ripkin's story, the Chinese, he went into the Chinese uh, underground church, the persecuted church in China, and you know what their question was? Is Jesus in the rest of the world, or is he just in China? Their country's so closed, they didn't even know Jesus had gotten anywhere else. They just thought they had him. All to their self. Listen, these concepts are unique to the American church. Because of our prosperity and the laxity of our spiritual walk and lives as a church. And we've got to step it up. Think of it this way. Three types of churches. Use the analogy of of ships. You've got cruise liners. Mega church growth movement create more and more programs and activities to provide comfort for the church members and we'll have a good ride together and we'll sing great songs every sunday morning and we'll build a bigger bigger health spa than the one down the street and we'll have more of this and more of that and by having all these opportunities and all these fluffs for the church we'll build a church and it'll grow yes it will And do absolutely nothing for the kingdom. They're filling up arenas all over America with churches like that. And wide is the road that leads to destruction. And many there are that find it. Cruise liners. The American church is full of them. Then you got battleships. Battleships are the predominant analogy of the american church below the the megachurch movement 95 percent of the churches in america would fit in this battleship category what it's done it's it's made a church culture where the pastor is the captain of the ship and he's loading all the guns and he's expected by the congregation they pay him to do the battle And so the only boots on the ground for most of these battleship churches is the pastor and the staff. And the church just comes and cheers them on every week and saying, I'm glad you did that. I'm glad y'all went out every week. I'm glad you all did this and did this. And it's a battleship mentality. But the gospel church in the New Testament was meant to be an aircraft carrier. What do aircraft carriers do? Aircraft carriers equip the planes to take the battle as far away from the carrier as it can possibly get. Your goal as an aircraft carrier is to dispatch planes to where the battle is. That's what the church needs to be. Happening within these walls on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Sunday night, we need to be equipping the planes to take the battle as far away from this building as we possibly can. And everywhere you leave the deck and take off to on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, throughout the week, everywhere you land your plane should be a battle going on for the sake of the gospel, for the kingdom's sake, and in the name of Christ and Wallace Memorial Baptist Church. The church is built and made to be an aircraft carrier. It's when we settle into being a cruise liner or a battleship that we have nominal or negative impact on the kingdom of God and the lost world keeps getting darker we got to be an aircraft carrier we got to take the battle to where the battle happens and that's in the normal rhythms of life it exists to provide Christian luxury services implies that the church institution does most of the fighting the church was never meant to be an institution the church was meant to be an army of people that take the gospel fight into the world day by day the institutional church never changed the world disciples changed the world that's where we've got off in the last hundred years we've come to believe that the church is the mechanism for a gospel delivery was never meant to be that the disciple is the vehicle for gospel delivery you and me we can't lose track of that the gospel goes where these feet walk and where your feet walk. And if that doesn't happen, the church will never accomplish the Great Commission. It can't. It implies that the pastors are paid to find the targets and fire the guns while the church gathers to watch and cheer them on. They see programs and ministries of the church as the primary instruments of the mission. It can't do it. The primary instance of the mission primary instruments of the mission is in my shoes and your shoes you're it we're it not programs not processes they're important but they are not the executor of the great commission and the gospel we're to equip planes to carry the battle elsewhere members need to learn to share the gospel without the help of the pastor in the community and start ministries and bible studies everywhere you go ministries and bible studies for the equipping of the saints happens here. Ministry and Bible studies for the gospel propagation happens in the community. It happens in your coffee shop. It happens at McDonald's. It happens at Cracker Barrel. It happens in your living room. That's where evangelism takes place. Not within the walls of the church. We'll we'll do evangelism within the walls of the church, but this is an equipping operation. To send us all out with the gospel to do evangelism where we live, walk, work, and play. We've got to change the paradigm of our thinking in order to be effective for the gospel's sake. That's what this whole thing about being outwardly focused is. And we're going to talk about the definition of that in just a second because that's getting kind of muddy too. Churches must become discipleship factories or sending agencies that equip their members to take the battle to the enemy. That's why we exist as a church, as an institution. To be disciple making factories. To be those that execute the gospel in the world around us. Just remember where you live, work, and play. In your home place, the workplace, and the marketplace. That's where you live. 98% of your time. That's where the gospel has to be. And you're the gospel. Take it with you as you go. Churches that want to penetrate their world with the gospel think less about the Sunday morning bang. And more about equipping their members to blast a hole in the mountain of lostness. And and I'm telling you that we went to a creative church conference years ago. And I won't mention the pastor's name, but it's Ed Young Jr. and, And he used to... He used to say he had a saying and he had everybody bought into it during church growth age. And Ed Young Jr. would say, it's about Sunday, stupid. It's all about Sunday. That was his phrase. No, it's not. That's the big show paradigm. It's all about Monday through Saturday. That's where we live. That's where the gospel has to go. It's Sunday is not the bang. The bang is in the world the rest of the week. And we have to figure that out in order to blast a hole in the mountain of lostness. Increasingly in a post-Christian society, unbelievers will simply not make their way into our churches no matter how attractive we make them. Listen, we, we, can't, we can't make the building attractive enough, shiny enough, pretty enough, smelling good enough to attract lost people. It will never happen in today's culture if I can find an uh, article that, yeah, here it is. J.D. Greer, the pastor at Summit Church in uh, Research Triangle area, North Carolina. He wrote a book where a lot of this is coming from tonight uh, called uh, Gaining by Losing. Great book. I highly recommend you get it and read it. Gaining by Losing by J.D. Greer. That's G.E.G.R.E.E.A.R. Uh, Greer. Young pastor. Pastors of uh, church in the Research Triangle area, Raleigh Durham area, uh, 10,000 people and growing. And he wrote a book called Gaining by Losing. He served on the mission field in Muslim areas for many years before becoming a pastor. And uh, he said, But our world in the West is changing. The number of people checking none for religious affiliation on censuses increases at an astounding rate each year. Nuns, as they are called, do not casually make their way into churches for any reason. We have to think of them as we would people of a completely different religion. JD says, I lived in a Muslim country for several years and I was with friends with dozens of people who went to the mosque weekly. At no point did I consider going with them. Think about it. Think about how foreign that sounds. You live in a Muslim country, you're a Christian. Would you consider going to a mosque? No. That's a foreign concept. He said, at no point did I consider going with them. I wouldn't have gone for a special holiday. Now make the analogy and the connection between the nuns and the lost church and us and J.D. Greer as a Christian and the mosque. That's the parallels he's trying to give. I wouldn't have gone for a special holiday. I wouldn't have gone if I were facing hard times. I wouldn't have gone if the Imam were doing a really helpful series on relationships or if he told me really funny stories that helped me see how Allah was relevant to my life. I wouldn't have gone had they added percussion and a kick and electric guitar to the prayer chants. (laughs) Islam is a completely foreign world and one in which I knew I clearly did not belong, so I didn't go. That's how the nuns see us and our church experience. It's a foreign world that they don't belong in, so they don't go. And nothing we can do, no band, no no anything we do will make them want to come. It's foreign to them and their way of thought. It just is. They've separated themselves. They're not religiously affiliated. That's why they call themselves nuns or why the religious world does. Then he goes on to say... I'd take that back. I did visit the mosque one time because a Muslim friend invited me and I wanted to honor him by learning more about his life and faith. It was an unmitigated disaster. First, we had to sit in weird, uncomfortable positions for extended periods of time. And everyone but me seemed to know what to say at various points of the service. They would all suddenly stand up in unison, leaving me clamoring to get to my feet, which was hard when you couldn't feel your legs anymore. And they all dressed in the same outfit, and my Nike shirt and Levi jeans made me feel pretty out of place. At one point, they sang out an amen. At that point, I thought I knew the drill, hearkening back to my days in a country Baptist church. So I hit the harmony note. No one else deviated from the primary note. Everyone turned to stare at me. I felt like a a side of bacon at a bar mitzvah. It was an awful experience, and although my friend invited me back several times, I always managed to find a reason not to be able to go. The mosque was a portal to a completely different world, and I didn't have an Islamic faith that would compel me to put up with the discomfort required to learn the unfamiliar ways of that world. This is a bit what it's like for people in the post-Christian West as they look into the Christian church. A British friend of mine, Steve Timmis, cites a recent study in Great Britain in which 70% of Brits declare that they have no intention of ever attending church service for any reason, not at Easter, not for marriages, not for funerals or Christmas Eve services. For more than two-thirds of the people in Great Britain, nothing will carry them naturally into a church. Listen, we can deny it all we want to, but that is the post-Christian, modern post-modern culture in America today. Europe is just a couple of years ahead of us. But we are in that paradigm now and we are going deeper and deeper into it. The nuns have no reason to come to church. They do not feel compelled to. Therefore, what is the answer? Having a bigger and bigger church with louder and louder music and and shinier and shinier entries? No, because they don't care. The answer is we must go to them. We must invite them into our lives, into our living rooms, into our kitchens. We must invite them into our world outside of these walls in order to ultimately have the opportunity to assimilate them into our lives within the church. That's the culture we're living in. And to deny it is just to to fail. So that's why more and more discipleship opportunities have to happen where you live, work, and play. That's why you have to do Bible studies at the Cracker Barrel. It's why you have to do Bible studies at Starbucks and McDonald's. It's why you have to do Bible studies in your backyard, and front yard. It's why you need to get to know your neighbors and go invite them into your home. If we don't do that, we're missing the entire call of the Great Commission in this century. And that strategy is going to become more and more important every day that passes. Because the nuns don't care. But we have to, and we have to go into the highways and the hedges. If that's not a prophetic statement of Jesus back 2,000 years ago, for us today to go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, you can't compel them from in here to come in. They're not hearing us. They're not listening for us. But you can compel them from the context of your life, To come in. Living your life as though Jesus were living it. That was part of our discussion in our connect group this morning as as Jeff Robbins was leading us. He said, what's that look like? Jesus living your life as, are you living your life as Jesus was living it? And the discussion quickly became, go read the book of John. Read the gospel of John. It leaves out a lot of the preliminary history like the other gospels do. And it starts with the life of Jesus. And read it with the filter of when Jesus got up that day, what did he do? He got up early and spent time with the Father. And then he went out amongst the people. And he lived with them. He walked with them. He cared for them. He was attentive to their needs. He was intentionally aware of their needs. And he met them in order that he might have a relationship with them. You want to live your life? the way Jesus would live it if he was walking in your shoes, get up early and spend time with the Father. Make intentional decisions to share your life with other people and where you work, live, and play. Go into your workplace knowing that the majority of the people that you rub elbows with every day of your life are lost and headed for an eternal hell. And share your life with them. Discover their needs Ask how you can pray for them. Invite them into your life and sincerely, genuinely care for them. You will be amazed at how people will come to you where you live, work, and play because you have stepped into their world and introduced them into your life. That's how Jesus did it. I beg you, read any gospel you want to. It's the same story. And it's how Jesus did it continually. Get up. Start your day with the Father early. Be intentional about interacting with lost people. And share your life with them. And invite invite them into it. That's evangelism. That's evangelical living. That's Christ-like living. That's what an outwardly focused Christian looks like. It's what the church must be. So what's the answer? We must become a sending church full of sent people. We must become a sending church full of sent people. Every weekend, we need to commission you to go back into the world from this building to be a sent person, an evangelical Jesus-loving, Jesus-living gospel story that lives your life with the attitude and the countenance of someone who truly is saved, who never has to fear hell again in their life and knows they're going to spend an eternity in a perfect place, completely void of sin, no matter what we have to walk through in this world. There's a lot to have joy about. But so often we don't walk it. People can't tell it by our countenance because we look just like they do. And, oh, my gosh, there's so much that the Christian life must be about. But a downcast face is not part of it. How can people see Jesus in you if you walk around with your head down all the time, trying to avoid the messiness of people's lives? Walk with your head up and a smile on your face and Jesus on your lips and watch how people react. They'll, re- they'll be repelled initially. But over time, when they see it is sincere, that's all they're waiting on. Is this guy real? Is this girl real? I know what they say they are. I know what they sort of act like. I'm going to watch for a little while. When they see it's real, they'll be attracted to it because they have a life that's dark and dead and lost and desperately in need of what you have that's what an evangelical life looks like not in here we don't live our evangelical life in here we live our equipping stage in here and then we live our evangelical life outside of here if, if the church building burns down tomorrow the church does not cease The traditions may change, the comforts may change, but the church has to thrive because the church lives in here, and it walks where you walk. And We have to change our mindsets. We have to change the whole attitude of how we approach life. We've approached it like this is the reality of Christianity. It's not. The reality of Christianity is in the messiness of people's lives that desperately need gospel. We need to live in reality. We need to be a church of sending church of sent people. We need to we need to start churches that start churches. We need to start connect groups that start connect groups. We need to start D groups that start D groups. We need to start E groups that start E groups. Everything we do must be simplistic and reproducible. In order for the gospel to go throughout the whole world, that's why Jesus. Paid it all. He's done it all. All we have to do is share it. Salvation is free. Salvation is easy. Now, let me take it back. Salvation is simple. It ain't easy. It requires a sacrificed life. A death to self in order to live for Christ it's not easy we have way too much pride invested in who we are we have way too much comfort in our own preferences so don't ever think that salvation is easy it's not salvation is free discipleship costs you your life that's what the gospel teaches we are not our own we are bought with a price We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves of the Savior. If we read the New Testament any other way, we have completely adulterated the gospel. But so often the church lives it another way and tries to convince ourselves that we don't have to pay that price. Death, even death on a cross can't really call yourself a follower of Jesus if you don't see yourself as sent. He sends each of us somewhere to some group to make disciples of those who don't know him. We are a sent people. It is the Great Commission. Many people are waiting on a voice from heaven to tell them to go. Here's your sign. John twenty twenty one. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. There you go. When you have a verse, you don't need a voice. You've already got it from the Word of God. It's His breath. As the Father sends me, so I send you. What are we waiting on? Every Christian, this is Charles Spurgeon, the preacher to preachers. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. I think it begs the question, am I a missionary? Or am I an imposter? We all have to be gutsy enough to ask the question and be honest with the answer what does it mean to be an outwardly focused christian does it mean we do events and activities and projects outside the walls of the church yes but wallace has done incredible job in the past and currently of being outwardly focused from an event standpoint and a project standpoint. This church probably does more local and international missions than any church I know in town. And we do that well. And there's much to be affirmed there. And I want to affirm you in that because it's incredible. Sandy Bolton, (laughs) she's a a part-time church member that does more than any two full-time missions pastors that I've ever been associated with. And she's to be affirmed because she's amazing, quite honestly. As is Scott and all the ministry he does to not only his own ministry, but to support her and vice versa. And everybody who's involved, Jeanette Thomas and the Appalachian ministry. And I mean, it's unbelievable at what is done in this church every year. So yes, that is part of being an outwardly focused Christian and important and critical. But that's not all it means. It's not all it means. It's not enough. Again, this is not an institutional gospel. It is an individual evangelical gospel. So projects are important. But until we finally make the decision and understand what the New Testament teaches a sent believer is about, we still don't get it. If my life is not a mission trip happening all the time, then I don't understand the Great Commission. It's not an event that we do. And I've probably been on, I don't know, 14 or 15, maybe more international mission trips in my lifetime. And so I believe in international and domestic missions and home missions. I believe in all of it. But it's not enough. It's not all our life is a mission i am a missionary it's more than that and until we make the transition from a project event oriented existence to an individual walking missionary existence then we'll never be kingdom effective the way christ meant for it to be never because we don't even see ourselves that way it also means we need to begin to think of others before ourselves again get up early spend time with the father instantly make a choice to be others focused before you leave your house that means you don't blow your horn at the person in front of you who don't go at the green light that's an inwardly focused person and by the way that never worked for me because it never failed it was always a church member somebody I knew that when I got to where I was going it was them and then I had to just apologize all over myself and that never tastes good but we have to think other, of others before ourselves always we have to and it does not come from our natural man that way it's an intentional spiritual man choice you have to put on your other's focused heart before you leave the house in the morning because it didn't wake up with you It is something that's infused in you by the Holy Spirit of God and you have to choose to energize it by spending time with the Father in His Word, making a conscious, intentional choice to think of others first because it's not born in us. It's reborn in us. It has to be an intentional choice of a redeemed man or woman. It means we have to train our hearts to always think of others before ourselves. It's a training process. It's a discipline because it don't come natural. That means every day, every day of your saved life, you need to train and discipline your heart to think of others first. And take every thought captive in Christ Jesus so that we don't allow our emotions and our sparked anger to nullify our testimony and our witness. It's an intentional discipline of the heart. We have to train our hearts to to believe correctly and think correctly. It means that as we go, in the everyday rhythms of our lives, we find ways to engage people with Jesus' conversations. And listen, if we don't intentionally think about that and continually try to figure out new ways to engage people in Jesus' conversations, it never comes out. You'll talk about the weather. You'll talk about your dog that you just bought those bones for. Ask them what kind of dog they have. And they'll start telling you all about what he does to tell you he's going outside to use the bathroom. I mean, all those things will happen. Jesus won't. So All those things are cute and comfortable. But intentionally have Jesus conversations. We make it difficult, and it's really not. All you got to do is first get yourself to speak his name. You'll be amazed at once the word Jesus comes off your lips, how comfortable it becomes over time. But it takes discipline. It takes a surrender of a life. It takes a complete change of heart. And we have to find ways to engage people with Jesus' conversations. Listen, and we can't worry about being awkward. Hope is not a strategy. We can't hope it happens. We can't hope that we find somebody to share Jesus with today hope is not a strategy strategy is a strategy the failure of any organization whether it's corporate or religious is execution we can have all kind of programs and promises and strategies and if they are not executed they are worthless they're just pretty things in a manual in a book we must execute the gospel By intentionally sharing the name of Jesus. We have to plan encounters with our neighbors and those we encounter on a daily basis. And I'm going to say it again. Where we live, work, and play. In your home place, your workplace, and your marketplace. Plan encounters with your neighbors. Here's what I want you to do as part of your exercise for this week. I'll say this first. We must quit worrying about whether our conversations about Jesus are awkward or not. Got to quit worrying about awkward. Awkward is better than hell. Embarrassment is worth their salvation. Embarrassment and awkwardness is a function of pride, ultimately. I'm afraid I'll look silly. I'm afraid of what they'll think about me. Big stinking deal. They're lost and need the gospel. Quit worrying about awkward. And tell them about Jesus. Jesus. It is awkward sometimes because the world don't want to hear it, so they think. But awkward's better than hell. So what do I do? Go home this week. Make a list of all the places you go on a weekly and monthly basis. Just get out your ledger pad. Get out your legal pad and just think about your week and think about your month. We all have cycles, don't we? We all have patterns we travel in. I go to Walmart 23 times a day. I go to the gas station when I run out of gas. I go to the Krispy Kreme donut shop more often than I should. If I get home and forgot something from Walmart, I stop at the Dollar General. I mean, am I the only one that has these paths in my life? We all have paths in our life. Go home, make a list. Think about Monday through Sunday, where does your life take you? Draw you a little map. Monday I always go this way and I stop here. Friday morning, here's my path. I wake up at five o'clock. I take a shower most of the time. I'm out the door at 5.30, I'm at the Pilot right here on Central Avenue and Merchants Road at six o'clock because the new Sentinel's free on Friday at Pilot. So I get a free new Sentinel. And there's usually 15, 20 people in there that I can interact with. But if I don't intentionally go in with the purpose of interacting with them, I will grab my free paper and run out the door before they decide to tell me maybe that they stopped doing free on Friday and I have to pay for it. So I grab a paper at six o'clock at the pilot every Friday morning, 6 a.m. I'm at, well, actually it's about 5.55. I'm at the Cracker Barrel parking lot, backed in, first truck in the parking lot at 6 a.m. Carol, the girl that works the counter at the Cracker Barrel, and some of you know her because you go there too a lot, Carol comes in about 6.02 and rings the doorbell over to the left of the door so the people in the back know to come and unlock the door in the front. So I follow Carol in the door. And I grab six menus and six setups of silverware. And before I get to my table... One of the three girls that takes care of us every Friday morning at 6.30 has my coffee at the table. That's just the rhythm of one hour of my life in one day. And before 6.30 a.m., I have encountered probably two dozen people. But if I don't intentionally think about engaging them with Christ... I'll get my paper. I'll get my coffee. I'll joke with the waitresses at Cracker Barrel, and when all the boys get there about six thirty, we order and goof off for about another hour, and we tell everybody we love them and pay our bill and leave. Well, we go out in the parking lot and goof off some more, and then we leave. That's the rhythm of my life on Friday morning. Every Friday morning for the last five years, probably for the next five years, Lord willing. Make a list of your path make a list of your life where do you live work and play where do you go every day most of you go the same patterns talk to the same people another thing we're talking about today in connect group is sometimes you can go to the cashier whether it's walmart or target or wherever you dwell and sometimes you'll walk up and the cashier just it's all they can do just to you know, they've got their head down and they're frustrated and either their attitude's rotten or they're just distraught about something. And, and so and Robin shared the, the story this morning that that, you know, if, if that happens and she can tell that person needs a touch, then she'll look behind her to make sure there's not three people in line. And if there's nobody there, then she'll say, I can tell you're just a little out of sorts this morning. How can I pray with you? And, and almost instantly, tears come from the eyes. And the way Robin shared it was, and I'll just reach over and take her hand and, and just tell her, I'm not even gonna close my eyes. I don't want people to think you're weird or I'm weird. I'm just gonna look you in the eye and pray for you. Is that okay? Yes. You've just touched them for Christ. Now the next step of intention it's the next time you go to Walmart or Target, look for that cashier. Don't go to the line with the shortest line. Look to the one that God gave you to touch the last time and get in their line no matter how long it takes to stand there and touch again. Tell them, try to remember the name, write it down, whatever you got to do. They've all got name badges. Tell them, say, look, I was in here about a week ago and I prayed with you. Are you you're doing good, everything better, and can I pray for you again today, and and they'll remember you. Be intentional in your path. Go home tonight, write down your path. And where you go on a weekly and monthly basis. Determine simple ways you can engage the people you encounter regularly. I'm not talking about elaborate schemes here. I'm just talking about how can you love on the people you encounter. Think about how Jesus did it. As he walked through the streets... He was aware of the hurts of the people and the needs of the people, and he stopped to care for them. Stop and care. Write down your path. Think of names. If you can't remember names, follow your path and keep your legal pad with you and write down names on your path. And start praying for those names. This is what an outwardly focused Christian, a sent person, does. They intentionally think of, think of ways to engage people with the gospel in the name of Jesus. But as church folks, we don't do that. We just go through our life and wander in and out and don't give any thought to their lostness. And I promise you, the vast majority of them are lost. And you may be the one that has the privilege bringing them into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ just because you cared enough to pray determine simple ways you can engage them on a regular basis invite them to church invite them over or out for coffee invite 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 sincerely ask them about their lives their families their prayer needs be sincere they are looking for sincerity if they sense it's not there you are done If they feel like, I think I may have even said that somewhere. Yeah. Treat them like a person, not a project. A lost person is not an evangelistic project. They are a lost person who needs Jesus. Do not treat them like a project. They're people with needs and hurts. And their biggest need is named Jesus. If we're going to have an impact on this world, we have to become aircraft carrier churches that equip our disciple-making planes to take the battle as far away from the church as possible in order to win the battles of lostness in our world. We just have to. It's who we are created to be. We have to become outwardly focused Christians who are making disciples who make disciples. If you're a disciple, if you call yourself a disciple and you've never made a disciple, you're not a disciple. Because disciples make disciples who make disciples. If it's not reproducible, it's not discipleship. That's the reason our structure is the way it is. We must become outwardly focused Christians who are making disciples who make disciples. And I've already answered the question for the night because it's the only one that was left in the box among the ones that matter to everybody. So let's pray. God, help us to be mindful of the hurting people around us. Help us to discipline ourselves to spend time with you every morning and be intentional about our day, to map out our life with a gospel map, to enter into conversations and relationships with a gospel intent. God, I'm so sorry that I haven't loved you enough and loved others enough to figure this out a long time ago. But tonight, Lord, we want to commit to you to love people and love you and be intentional as we walk through our day, tomorrow and even tonight, between here and home. If we stop on one of our paths, God, help us to speak Jesus' name. Help us to be compassionate. Help us to be sincere. Help us to believe in you. Help us to believe in the power of the gospel. Help us to realize we have no power apart from it. But if we abide in you and you abide in us, we'll bear much fruit. And we can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. Help me to trust in that power, in that abiding, in that relationship. Help me to trust in you, not myself. Help us to be a sending church full of sent people that reaches the lost world for your glory, for the kingdom's sake. In Christ's name I pray, amen. I love you guys. I don't have any donuts or cookies for you tonight. Sorry. Unless there's any fruit or cheese left from the reception. i sure you can clean that off. But thank you for being here. I love you.